Welcome to episode 66 of FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again at home in the suburbs of Washington. This is our fourth remotely recorded episode, and I'm going to give a quick shout out to our producer, Kate Sammer, across the river from me, who is keeping me on the straight and narrow. Our special guest, David Hardoon, joins us from his home in Singapore. We've got David right as he is in transition. David has just completed a three-year stint at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, perhaps the world's leading regulatory agency when it comes to fintech and innovation, where he was the Chief Data Officer and Special Advisor for Artificial Intelligence. He's moving to several new capacities. You really should just see just quite how busy his LinkedIn profile is right at the moment, including a new role as Senior Advisor for Data and Artificial Intelligence at Union Bank of the Philippines. David has kindly shared his thoughts with us in several previous IAF events, and of course we're moving now with the COVID virtual times in having him join us remotely for our podcast today. He also continues the strong MAS engagement on FRT after their Chief Fintech Officer Sopnendu Mahanti joined us late last year during the Fintech Festival on episode 54. David, welcome to FRT and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we do jump into, I guess, the more substantive issues around data, I'd like to just get your impressions on the ground in Singapore. From afar here in Washington, it seemed early on that Singapore was very effective in in countering COVID-19. But I guess you know the, the signals have been a little bit more mixed in recent weeks. There's been, I gather, a number of new cases in Singapore and an increased set of measures and responses. A number of new cases in Singapore that was probably large by local standards, but tiny and paling into insignificance by what we're seeing in the US and Europe. But how does it actually feel on the ground there in Singapore? Naturally, the situation is alarming to anyone, but uh, ultimately on the ground, I mean, people have confidence. And I think that's the most important part. Everything that is possible is being done. And also a bit of a kind of reminder on the context that, you know, we're dealing with the virus. So there is only so much that can be done. Hence, in situations when things kind of escalate, as slightly happened over the last week, there's understanding that, okay, we, we may need to buckle down a bit more. But as I mentioned, we're, we're all in this for the long run and kind of identifying what's going to be the new normality that will come afterwards. Yeah, interesting times ahead and, and lots of uncertainty on so many different fronts right at the moment. David, I, I do want to ask you about your various new capacities a little later, and I'll make sure that we come to that. But firstly, let's start with the current health crisis and specifically the role of data in helping to solve this. Are there particular data policies or restrictions you see that could impede the deployment of important solutions? For instance, we've seen the EU initially indicate that European AI would need to be developed on European data only, and they seem to have started to back away from that a little bit, I think understanding that that could restrict vaccine development. Are there restrictions or potential issues that stand out to you that we should be thinking about? Unfortunately, yes, uh, and quite a number of them. This situation, how extremely unfortunate it is, has been a, on the other hand, a very good use case or an evidencing why we need to think more proactively on the unintended implications of privacy controls as well as nationalistic controls on data. And what we're finding is that it is, in fact, stopping us from collaborating and jointly working towards the mitigation, or at the very least, if not mitigation, the detection and tracking of the COVID-19 situation. So I think this is a turning point where we need to realize that, that while naturally privacy is important, and that is already reflected in a significant number of policies, while there is various uh, nationalistic interests that need to be protected, security, we need to start moving forwards and seeing how can we assure that ultimately data can be used both within the country as well as, more importantly, cross-border. Let me just add one more thing, and I think this is another degree of dimensionality that I don't believe 
well, again, this is the power of hindsight, policymakers may have had is this kind of necessity of what, what I kind of dub as war state versus peace state. The policies that put in place, while didn't result in such a difficulty for organizations and doing what they did on a continuous basis, because they could do it. They complained due to escalating costs or whatnot. But in the end of the day, they could still do what they wanted to do. But now in the so-called war state, we need to have a certain degree of flexibility and ask other difficult questions such that am I willing to somewhat sacrifice privacy to, in a very literal sense, save a person's life? We currently don't have these levers uh, and we need to have them in place. You allude there to, to data localization, and I think in this COVID environment, localization seems to be more of a folly than ever now. You and I were both commenting on this on social media a couple of weeks ago. It is, as you say, I think more important than ever that we can move data across borders. And we see the use of things like cloud services as a means of ensuring business continuity, avoiding disruptions, ensuring that businesses can operate if one of their major data centers or locations is a coronavirus hotspot. But this issue precedes COVID, and indeed, it's really been Singapore that I think has been leading the way in in tackling this issue. You've had the recent memorandum of understandings there, both with the US and with Australia. But how do you see this issue trending through COVID and and beyond? Well, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, uh, COVID-19 had forced everyone to willingly or unwillingly accept the necessity of data connectivity, if I use the inverse or the antithesis of data localization, for a very simple reason. If we had localization of data, the economies would be truly shut down. The only remnants of the fact that we're able to operate is the fact that we can do this. We can have a conversation Mm. with the flow of data. So I think it kind of shined in... um, to some extent for some, uh, an uncomfortable limelight on the fact that it may indeed be in a folly. And what I personally am hoping is that it would give a, a very strong backwind to various regulatory bodies, nationalistic interests, approaches that have been taking this kind of stance of like, oh, the reason why we're doing this is because of privacy and security. Now having the somewhat counterbalance of, and again, I want to emphasize the absolute importance of privacy and security. I always say that that's a hygiene. But how do we assure that the economies can continue? And realizing that this data connectedness is absolutely parallel for the economy to continue. And I'd like to just give a very simple example, because I think at times people do not connect. What does this mean in a day-to-day application? One example, we talk a lot about, if I come from the financial world, about payments, but this is just one. It's many industries. In the end of the day, to facilitate a payment between point A and point B, regardless of where these points are, data has to flow. I mean, it is as simplistic as that. So when you come with kind of this draconian approach of data must be localized, it cannot connect effectively, and only by exception it can, we end ourselves in these kind of situations whereby we're doing patchwork effectively. It makes a lot more sense to reverse the policy by saying, with the hygiene of privacy and security, data must have the ability to connect with the exceptions of certain situations whereby, for whatever reasons, we localize. So flipping it upside down effectively. I like the fact that you express it in the positive in terms of connectivity rather than the negative of localization. I think it's an important point you make around enabling transactions as an example. One thing we've talked a lot about at the IIF has been some of the experiences, uh, PayPal highlighted one during our annual meeting last year, where localization restrictions were put in place in Turkey on the processing of transactions that essentially meant that PayPal had to exit the market completely. 
And one consequence of that was that tour operators in Istanbul were no longer able to accept PayPal and, and some of them went out of business. And so I think there's a really important point that you're alluding to that is about facilitating international commerce, but also the way you connect that to the fact that it, it needs to be about bringing security up to the higher standard. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is that it is Amazon Web Services and Google Cloud and the like that are probably providing the stronger level of security and, and protection in the world. If I may add to that point, and, and actually we're alluding to a very, very important dimension that at the times when I was in my previous role in the regulatory environment, I'd in fact kind of advised organizations to pitch it, if I use that term, slightly differently, because previously organizations would always talk about the cost implications. In fact, what it means to them from an economic standpoint. And I said that while that may be true, there is a far more significant, in my perspective, that results from the localization of data or the lack of connectivity, which is in fact, ironically, a security one. By having an inability to connect data, you are in fact creating more holes, which slightly more nefarious parties will leverage because they do not have similar type of uh, prohibitions effectively. We need to think of it also from a security standpoint, from a regulatory perspective, from a risk management point of view. Yeah, ensuring that we don't create points of vulnerability in the system unnecessarily. Absolutely. I want to carry on with one of the other themes that you alluded to in your, your opening comment, and that was about privacy. And again, if I put this in the context of COVID, you know, I, I think data privacy is really going to emerge as one of the really big stories over the next couple of months, if it isn't already. In the early stages of COVID in, in Wuhan, uh, in China, you know, we saw a lot of reports of things like the Chinese government using payments data as a means of identifying which of their citizens had been buying cold and flu medicine, for instance. And, uh, and I guess depending on which version of social media you adhere to, they were either doing that to benevolently check up on those citizens or alternatively to further constrain them and weld them in their houses, perhaps. But I think there's been increasing attention. In the West, there was perhaps a bit of a sense of being aghast at that at the time. And I think things have already moved on considerably to now having the discussions about contact tracking, um, even immunity certificates being talked about in Germany. And I think there's perhaps a growing sense, or I think there will be a continued growing sense of that we're going to need to, to have to face up to this privacy versus greater public good debate, perhaps as an enabler for how we get out of our homes and back into to wider society. Is that how you see it? Or do you think this COVID experience perhaps prompts a, something of a rethink in terms of, of how society might value privacy as opposed to greater public goods? Uh, this is a, a wonderfully complex topic. And I just want to just start with a caveat that, of course, take into consideration both local and cultural approaches towards privacy. So one has to always be, I guess, sensitive and, and cognizant of that. I do think it puts a very strong emphasis on the fact that we, we need to start moving away from uh, from absolutes, excuse me. And I think we've kind of been, I, if, if I err on the side of caution of actually saying that, I think we've kind of been globally been at the extreme points, like extreme use of data and we just do whatever we want with it or the extreme privacy as sacrilege and you cannot touch it from that perspective. What this kind of is showing us is that while taking into consideration the local and cultural perspective, that it, there, there must be a bit of a lever. There must be a spectrum between the two. My personal perspective, and, and to your point that you're alluding to, there is a balance with respect to the greater good. Naturally, we're not talking about just sending ads or, or trying to pitch more products to people. It, it, it really is alluding to how do we make sure that the population is safe, how individuals are not put in harm's way. 
And how it will be used ultimately is a difficult one. Now, what I'm hoping is that it will allow a certain degree of using data or dare I say, violating to some extent the individual privacy. And I know this is a very difficult term to say, but for the purpose of self-regulation. For example, let's say I, I use that data and I'm finding that you're binding that cough medicine and so forth, and I'm correlating with a GPS. And right now, I don't know who you are. I just know you're a, you're, you're a point of information. But I find that you're actually staying put. You're not interacting with people. You actually are self-regulating. And as, let's say, as a government, when I'm saying people stay at home, don't do things, et cetera, and so forth, you are adhering to that. Therefore, I don't have to interact to a certain degree. But let's say in a situation, you are not. And I'm finding that a person or that dot who has been identified as having COVID or interacting with those is now coming into, into contact with other people. There is a fiduciary responsibility as, as a, a governing body to go, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You are putting people in harm's way that may result in death. And in fact, well, you may not be aware of it and you may want to be aware of it, that's number one, or far worse than that, you are aware of it and you're doing it consciously, which I don't even want to go into the legality of that because I, I, I do not have the expertise, but we all know that has even legal uh, uh, implications. We've seen cases in the past with HIV and whatnot. So this is a bit of a reckoning that we need to put that lever in place. And I was kind of alluding to at the very beginning of a, and I know it sounds a bit dramatic, a peace versus wartime type of environments that ultimately are meant to assure there is the safeguard of both individuals, but groups of parts of the population at large. Look, absolutely. And I like the way you frame that in terms of that self-regulation scenarios you paint there are some very interesting ones. How the rest of society reacts and how that's enforced in those different scenarios is a real thought provoker. David, we've kind of moved to both the data connectivity or localization and the privacy angles that I've tended to think of as being the two really striking data issues that emerge with COVID. But the data policy field is much more multifaceted and diverse beyond that. And I want to talk to you more broadly now about you know, perhaps what are some of the other major data policy issues that you might see ahead. And if I just throw out a few examples, obviously we have data mobility regimes such as open banking in some jurisdictions really emerging in different parts of the world. We have greater use of AI, and I think that's also significant in terms of COVID and in terms of treatment plans and, and vaccines and the like. There's increased concerns about the ethical use of data. We talked on episode 55 of FRT with CROs Peter Deans and Yako Grobler of First Rand Bank at Risk Mines, where the conduct risk associated with data was really you know, one of the, the top two or three issues at, at the Risk Mines conference. So it's a very busy, crowded, topical field. But are there other areas that really particularly stand out for you as some of the burning issues of the day or the burning issues of the near term? Well, all, all the ones that you've mentioned earlier are huge topics that I feel we're not yet close to addressing. However, there are definitely more. And in fact, a very large topic in this dimension of data and data policy is tax, which in fact brings in another unanswered question of what is the value of data? Because how do you tax something that you can't ascertain a value? There has been already some debates, discussions on an international level and attempts towards it. But again, and this is a personal perspective, I feel more needs to be done. On the very first, there's a needs to be attempts in terms of a policy perspective of how do you even begin asserting value towards data? Because think about it. It's a very strange asset class. It's intangible in the sense that alone it has no value, but the value is derived from how it's used. So we could have the exact same access to the exact same data. However, you walking away with hundreds of millions of dollars and I'm, well, not. 
So what's the value of that data? How do I tax that origin of data? Or do I tax the processing of the data? Do I tax the usage of it independently of country? As you can see, this is a whirlpool of complexity, which requires multi-jurisdictional cooperation and a certain degree of alignment of various laws. But it is a very, very important one. And if we have any hopes in truly promoting the adoption and the prolification of data, and, and, and to these points that you have mentioned, especially from an AI point of view, open banking, because we're talking about open banking, not just open banking within the country, we're talking about open banking and digital banking that's now providing services cross-country and so forth. There is that necessity, and this is a very big topic we need to focus on. I just wanted to add that even though you've mentioned it, and it's not new per se, I just wanted to expand on it slightly, and that was on the ethical use. Again, at a risk of being controversial or, or taking a slight tangent to it, the approach that we're taking on the ethical use, I feel, while from a cultural perspective, uh, theological to a certain extent, has been fascinating and extremely important, from a philosophical perspective, extremely important, but it's not ultimately resulting in tangible deliverables that we can execute and operationalize on. And what I mean by that is, in the end of the day, when I build an AI or machine learning-based algorithm and I want to prolificate its usage within a country or across countries, how do I know it is doing what it's meant to do? And how do I know when, more importantly, it goes wrong? In other words, I feel at some degree the ethical debate needs to kind of flip upside down. And let's be focusing on how do we build algorithms that never do wrong. I kind of think that's, well, to, to be honest, illogical. Everything we build, everything we create, at some point will have a fault just from the time of being used. It's more about how do we now go about building mechanism, building safeguards, not just on a governance level, although it's important to have it on a governance level, but also on a technical level that allows us to detect when things are amiss. Even when we don't know it is amiss, but we know that just something is not quite right effectively. So that's another thing from, from a policy perspective that I'm kind of hoping to see a bit of a steering towards, moving away from that philosophical debate of how do we define ethics to, okay, however you define it, how do we detect when things go wrong? And how do we perhaps shine a limelight of the applicability of an AI algorithm within a process versus the human process? Plenty of great food for thought there. Thank you. Um, I'm going to change gears slightly. We obviously view data as being at the centre of a lot of the, the various innovations that uh, the data really helps to power. And obviously, we're all, we've all been going through a lot of transition recently, uh, adjusting to working from home. We're seeing a lot of things in the increased digitisation of services, the increased ordering through e-commerce. There's a greater use of, of cashless and, and contactless payments methods. Uh, quite a number of countries have doubled or tripled their, their contact pay, contactless payment limits. If we look ahead to what will hopefully, perhaps eventually, become the post-COVID world, what are the particular changes or, or new types of services that you think are, are most likely to, to take hold and, in, and endure beyond the, uh, the COVID era and, and into the post-COVID future? This this period, and, and let me just first add by saying that I hope the post-COVID era comes swiftly. Um, it, it, it has thrusted us into an a unusual S-curve. It has thrusted us into an S-curve that had forced us to work remotely, learn remotely, and be digital. It's very interesting because previously there have been these situations whereby, you know, Again, digital services where you say, oh, we can't do that. It's not possible. Regulation won't allow us. It will never work. When within a week, suddenly it's, it's, it's done, it's up, it's running, and it's successful. So 
I, I, I very much believe that, well, the two key things that will come out from as a next step, and I kind of bucket it from this perspective, is one is we, we shouldn't be afraid to challenge ourselves in terms of what we can do and what's needed to make it happen. In other words, let, let us hope we don't need another worldwide epi epidemic to realize that some of these digitalization capabilities, some of these services, some of these outcomes are possible. Like I said, I very much hope that we don't need an epidemic for that. Um, the second one is the actual services themselves that look, we're able to run businesses. We were able to run financial services from home. This is this is a bit of a, a, a just fascinating waking up of do we truly need to have, you know, having these capabilities from the office? And it's something we alluded to earlier about the cloud, but without going to that topic is that same thing about the learning. I'll give you a very simple example. Singapore previously, you know, school started at 7 a.m. You were physically in the school and, and, and trust me, for the parents, it's even earlier to wake up. And now suddenly because of the need to do uh, home-based learning digitally, school is starting at 10 and ending a bit later. So I see, again, just using it as a very simple example to making us suddenly challenge the status quo, not because it wasn't good. I want to emphasize that. But is there something else? As a last point, though, I want to say is I, though, very much hope that some things will go back to the way they were before. If there's anything that I've appreciate, learned to appreciate from this is not the, not, not the fact that I can't work from home and I enjoy it, is I want to work from the office. <laughs> um, likewise, is when it comes to school, I want to send my kids to school. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, let, let's take the good and let's, let's, let's leave what we may, we, we may not need. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get that opportunity uh, and that we can be selective in that way. It's interesting that the framing you used there of the, the unusual S-curve reminded me of a presentation I saw by Benedict Evans at a, a protocol breakfast in Davos uh, earlier in the year. And he talked about how every successive technology went through this S-curve where it, it starts out perceived as crazy. It subsequently gets traction, becomes recognized, gets embedded and succeeds, and then subsequently becomes boring at which point it is uh, superseded by the, the next S-curve. And I actually left his session slightly early, uh, rushing off to, to uh, meet with Sherry Madeira and, and Sim Shalabala of Standard Bank uh, to record our, uh, our episode from Davos. But it was actually on that very day that there were figures starting to come out of Wuhan and it was, it was I can pinpoint it, it was that Thursday of the Davos week that you know, the coronavirus scenario really entered my, my consciousness. So... The fact that uh, I was hearing about S-curves at the same time and that you bring it up here um, has a, an odd kind of symmetry or appropriateness to it. We, we have a, a very human trait that we are at our best when we are at our worst. Um, and, and it's a fascinating, wonderful trait. And, and I think what we need to continue learning is how do we achieve our best when we're not at such uh, grave situations? Because we, we truly can do phenomenal things. Well, let's continue with the, the personal element to it. And, and the last thing I really wanted to ask you about, David, was, was more about yourself. And you've recently completed three great years, uh, I think, at the MAS, both in the, the Chief Data Officer and Special Advisor on AI capacities. You now have so I, as, I, as far as I can tell, many new capacities, including that at the, uh, the Union Bank of the Philippines. Could I ask you to, to share some reflections from your time at the MAS and also to tell us a little bit more about what's next for David Hardoon? Well, okay. No, I, I, so I have to start by saying that the, the three years working for, well, actually, 
starting with that, it's it's a unique place, and it's a unique place because uh, MAS is not just the regulator, it's not just the central bank, it's not just the financial development. So it's a absolutely phenomenal place to be to kind of get this hybrid of these different dimensions. And but what I want to say is what I have learned and what I've walked away with immensely uh, richer, uh, hopefully slightly wiser, but immensely richer, is the appreciation of regulation and governance. Um, I, 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 I have to be honest that as many people walking in with a dreaded fear of uh, the governance and compliance and how do you kind of minimize interactions to the max, realizing that it is exceptionally misunderstood. Uh, and the reason I say that exceptionally misunderstood is because, and, and I, I appreciate when I, say, when I say the word good governance, that I allude to the fact that there may be some governance that's not, not as good. But having said that, that good governance, in fact, results in innovation. It's, it's a fertile ground for innovation. And the two must come hand in hand. In other words, and, and it kind of alludes to the very brief uh, uh, point that we discussed earlier, that there are some things that we can do that we may want to do, but we choose not to due to other consideration, to for the greater good, for other elements that, that may be at hand. So that's number one. Number two, because I, I, I am a data person and I try and avoid using the term a data scientist, I like to say uh, half-jokingly data artist, is it, it's, it's, I just realized that the approach that, again, a personal perspective that has been taken to compliance has been, to me as a data person, a bit interesting. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Any organization that's under uh, regulation, financial institutions mainly, will complain about the fact that data is siloed, that they can't access it across the organization, it's difficult. That's one. And number two, you have this large part of the organization whose sole purpose is chasing the organization for data to provide reports to a regulator or regulators. Now, if you take a step back, you kind of go like, hold on a second. You now have a part of the organization that has access to all that data that you said is siloed and can't be accessed. Okay, that seems then logical that they are a party that can actually view it and analyze it. And you're telling me that they're doing all of that to prepare a report, however important regulators and their notices are, just preparing a report. That sounds like a borderline definition of insanity. Walking away from an appreciation of governance and regulation and walking away with this appetite of saying, how does compliance, how does that function reinvent himself while still providing those reports, but acting as almost a central capacity for insights in how an organization is operating and feeding that back to the business effectively. Again, it's, it's a fantasy, hoping to have the ability to convince others to explore that, but that's kind of what I personally walk away with. Yeah, I think it's a, a really important point that it resonates a bit with, with something we found in our recent uh, IIF Deloitte study on digital transformation that you know, we heard from a number of firms, and it probably surprised me a little, that they really pointed at the work that they had to do for the regulator to comply with BCBS 239 as something that they then realised actually provided the, the catalyst and the platform for the proactive things that they could use data for in other areas of improving their business. And I think that really resonates a lot with the, the storyline that you're telling there. And uh, on a personal note, oh, how should I say? I'm, 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 I'm a geek. I, I, I always, and I say, I mean, have you heard me say this many times? I, I like to say I'm, I, I was a geek before it was cool because now obviously it's, it's immensely popular to being a geek. 
And I truly get my excitement, my joy, my pleasure from dealing, dealing with all things that are data, be it on the policy side, the governance side, the implementations. I still like getting my hands dirty. And now with my role with, you know, Union Bank of Philippines, it's, it's the opportunity of putting some of these policies, these thought processes into practice, into how data can be capitalized to derive value to consumers in the end of the day. Naturally, concurrently with that, I'm very much... Uh, hoping and, and I've started with it, but hoping to continue uh, engaging with, with, with the general public uh, through discussions, writing, uh, trying to write prolifically. And, and, and I say that with a slightly apostrophe because this is what it is. I mean, in the end of the day, for us to progress is for us to move forward. And I'm hoping to have a, in the smallest possible capacity, at least some degree of participation in that. We need to have debate. We need to have discourse. We need to have the sharing of ideas. And if I may share, one of the first things I, I told uh, uh, financial institutions when I was helming the role of CDO and, and uh, special advisor for AI is I told them, you are very, very bad at being fremenies. And said to me, what do you mean, David? I said, look, yes, you're competitors, but in order for the industry to move forward, you need to talk, you need to discuss, you need to share, you need to debate. And that's true for any industry and true for any area. And that's equally when, when I bring up the topic, which you know is very close to my heart of data localization, data connectivity, I start off by saying, if there is a case to localize, please bring it up. Let's debate it. That's kind of my hope and moving forward. Making it work, implement it, make AI real, operationalize AI. I think that's a very, very important pillar that more needs to happen in operationalizing it, but concurrently be part of that larger discourse. Well, certainly that's uh, a similar line of thought that we have at the IEF and very much about helping to facilitate some of that discussion, both within the industry and, and between the industry and the official sector. It reminds me a lot of a comment Mark Cuban made recently about small businesses and how they need to react and respond and, and plan for how they come out of the COVID shutdown and that they need to be talking with their, their so-called competitors, uh, that that's your best source of learning for how you're tackling what is suddenly a, a unique and, and unforeseen uh, scenario. David, I've got to thank you very much for all of the, the many insights that you've been very generous in sharing with us. And I'm going to make an attempt at trying to summarise just a few of the, the key points that really stood out for me. I liked where you began with the notion of, of how that the current situation is, is evidencing some of the unintended consequences that can arise with the privacy and localization issues. And the way that you related to the, the war state that demands flexibility but also the way that you talked about how there's a, a spectrum. And when we talk about the, you know, in some ways, the competing uh, imperatives of the individual's privacy and the greater public good, that there is a spectrum and we need to be thinking of it in that form rather than in, in absolutes. I thought it was a really interesting point you raised about tax. And I've got to admit, that's not one that's been terribly close to, to top of mind for me. But it's a very, uh, it was a very pertinent point you make. And in terms of trying to understand the value of data, the fact that a particular item of data is not fungible and it's not uh, doesn't have the same value to another party that it, it might to you or it might vary according to what other data that you have with it. I thought it was a really interesting point you made and, and the question of do you tax the usage rather than the value, that's one that I think we need to take away and reflect on a bit further. Data ethics, uh, you stressed, continues to be a, a major issue and I take a little bit of heart from that. The IIF's Board of Directors has, uh, has indicated that it, it would like us to develop a a data code of conduct or perhaps a, a data ethical charter um, that can represent how the industry maintains and protects, protects data. And perhaps also to set that as the standard that the firms that banks and insurers partner with would need to, to come up and adhere to as well. 
It may be that in your new capacity at Union Bank of the Philippines, we need to uh, reach out and engage and bring you into to that process with us as well. And lastly, I, I like the point you made that, that humans are at our best when we're at our worst, and that it's perhaps somewhat sad that it, it takes those worst scenarios to, to bring out the best in us. But in, in reasonably troubled times, as we find ourselves in at the moment, that is a, an important and reassuring uh, comment about humanity that we probably need to all bear in mind. So, David, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your comments, and it's been great to have you again on FRT. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. As we look ahead on FRT, we're going to pick up the data localization topic, and we'll speak a bit at the other end of one of those memorandums of understandings that Singapore has led. We're going to talk with the US Treasury on that one. We're also going to look at digital currencies, including the recently relaunched Libra white paper, and also some of the central bank digital currency developments we've seen, in particular at the PBOC in China, but also where the Bank of Canada and Bank of England have recently launched discussion papers. We'll talk through the IIF's digital transformation series with Deloitte that I alluded to. We'll have the second paper in that report published very shortly on some of the success factors and enablers in digital transformation. And next week on FRT, we're going to speak again with Peter Deans. Peter is the former Bank of Queensland Chief Risk Officer, who joined us in that risk minds discussion on data conduct risk that I alluded to back on episode 55. Peter has just launched his new 52 risks framework, a risk for every week of the year, it would seem. And he's going to talk to us about how to apply that framework in risk management, both with a context like the specific pandemic scenario, but also for how you manage the execution risk associated with digital transformation. So please join us again on those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT. 